The strength of mercy people is that they are deeply, deeply, deeply loyal people. Because their world revolves around um, emotions and relationships, they want their relationships to be very deep. seems like it's been a long time coming. This is the seventh in our series of the seven gifts in Romans chapter 12. I wonder how, ma- how much we've learned. Uh, do you all know the seven gifts now? Has anybody memorized them? What's the first gift? Prophecies. Prophecies first. What's second? Prophet, teacher, what's next? Anybody? Exhorter, exhorter. Exhorter's in there. I'm not sure if we're the right order or not, but I'll take it. What's next? Giver. Giver. Mercy. Mercy, that's what we're going to do today. Minister. Server. That's that's the same server minister. Ruler. And ruler or organizer. Good job. So so the way that we've taught these, right, like there's a there's a central way to understand each of these motivations. So with the prophet, his his world or lens is about truth. The teacher is knowledge. Exhorter is growth. It's a one-word way to say it. Servers are service. That one's in the name. Givers are resource. And you could call this management or organization. It's in there too. And finally, we have mercy. Let's, um, let's open up to Romans chapter 12 and let's read again this list for us. <clears throat> we usually start in 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So these last two um, are a little bit out of step with how he's dealt with the rest of those gifts. He has some particular designation for rulers with diligence and mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, And then and then, as we've talked about, I think these next gifts are in, uh, in order addressing those particular gifts. There, there's something to point out about each of those gifts. If you jump down to uh, verse 15, this is the verse that I think corresponds with the gift of mercy. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. So... So let's let's jump in. I, I think that it's interesting to me that this list ends with mercy. We have all of these all of these things, right? That that the that the church is composed of these motivations. The church has to have this motivation of truth and knowledge and growth and service. And we've talked about all the different ways of resources and management organization, like all of this is really important stuff. They're all aspects of how the church functions and operates in the world is the body of Christ. And we end here in this list with mercy. And I think that it's not accidental. 
I could say two different. I could I could define this motivation two ways. I could either say feeling, which is what I want to say here, or relationship. Say it that way. If we look at, uh, let me let me be um, let me share my own prejudices my own biases that I, that I come into this, this particular uh, teaching with. I, I live in this world. And if I was to say the two people, the two kinds of people that have had the most conflict in my life over the years are with other prophets and with mercy people. Um, other prophets, because when you have conflicting truth claims, these guys butt heads like nobody's business. And they actually are kind of prone towards that kind of action anyhow. So prophets clashing with prophets is not all that, all that interesting. But there is something that happens in the dynamic between prophet and mercy people because, because these two things, when they're, not, when they're not done with God's perspective, they end up looking contradictory. It, it's an apparent contradiction. Yeah, right. if, you, if, you, if your whole world is about truth or your whole world is about feeling, those are two very different things. And there's a lot of potential for conflict between those two motivations. And so, so when I look at this list and I'm, and I'm teaching on mercy, I wanna, what I'm trying to create is what's, what's God doing with these people? What, where, does this, where does this abide in Christ? What's the place that this fulfills? And why should it be the last, the place where we end this list? Right? Like, <clears throat> there's something significant about stopping at a certain place. And here we stop. And I think that all of these things are supposed to be, like, if you do all this stuff and the church can't feel, if all she is is truth and knowledge and growth, like, then we're just self-help gurus or scientists or, or something else. But when you take all of this and you run it through this gift of mercy, where this stuff becomes felt, not just known, but felt, not just a, not just a declaration, but connected to people and understanding, that's where the domain of this gift lies and why it's so very critical for the church. And so I want to look at that today. We don't want to just just know or just grow or just serve. These are all immensely important things. But this has to be connected through this channel of people who have this, this particular motivation and gift to feel and to connect and to relate. <clears throat> so God gave us mercy people. They're the ones who are in touch with the feelings of infirmity. Here's another way to think about this that was was interesting to me. This is the most um, incarnational of the gifts. And in that, you can see how, how well this sums up the Christ, how well it sums up his motivation in the world. Like, the desire to come... Okay, so the, the, the story of God's interaction with people is Jehovah way up here and our interactions with him. And the incarnation is the connection. It's the drawing point where God and man come together. And why should that be? Well, when we, talk, when we look at Hebrews, when we look at some of the epistles, there's this defined theolo theological framework that, that Jesus, as God in the flesh, is able to feel what man feels is able to understand what we understand, is able to be tired and hurt and, and cry and feel. Like that capacity to feel is what the incarnation brings into our theology. It's the place where God dwells in the feelings of who and what we are. Good morning. <laughs> so this... this this helps me to understand what God's doing with this, is that this is the act of Christ in the incarnation, is to come and, and put himself in the place where I am, where I find myself to be, where I'm, I'm struggling and I know that God can understand because God has been, he has put himself into the place that I am. 
And that's a really beautiful way to think and talk about the gift of mercy. <clears throat> I want to go... Okay, so let's talk about the, the, the archetype. The archetype for the gift of mercy is the Apostle John. And it's not for nothing that he's known as the beloved. The disciple that Jesus loved. <clears throat> when we look into John's life, when we see how he writes, when we see the things he's communicating, he becomes kind of like a standard bearer for this particular motivation. And we'll talk some more about that as we get into the strengths and weaknesses of this particular gift. But before we get there, let's flip over to 1 John. You know, in the epistle of 1 John, um, the word love is used quite frequently, and emotions are used quite frequently. Um, but I want to look particularly in this passage, starting in... Is it 3? Yes, uh, chapter 3 and verse 13... Actually, we're going to back up a little bit. We'll go all the way back to 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. This is how John sums up the message. That we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and whereas, wherefore slew he him, because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And then he talks about compassion. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and read it. But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So I think that encapsulates kind of like a, a motivational perspective of, of John and, he, and what he's trying to communicate. When he boils down what the essential message is, it all comes back to love. And not just like love God, because, you know, he's, he's saying it's, this, is, this is practical. Like it's love permeated. It's love coming through you and affecting those around you. So let's talk about the, the relative strengths and weaknesses that come along with this particular motivational gift. Um, to, to reiterate, because we have some who haven't been through this series before, what we're looking at is that, that these seven gifts are seven attributes or seven motivations that we can find in Christ himself and that they're, they're parceled out, that people have one or more of these central motivations and they operate functionally as kind of like the, the glasses that you wear that enable, that you, they're how you see the world. It's what makes things clear to you. It's the central motivation, like if you have one of them, it's the central motivation of, of, of what, what, what makes you tick, how you see the world. And so in each of these cases, <clears throat> Truth is the way you see the world, or knowledge, or growth, or service, or resource, or management, or relationship. That we have a primary way of viewing the world around us, and it's through this lens. And the reason we think this is so important to, to understand about ourselves and about our brothers and sisters in the church is because <clears throat> if we take these two again, and we highlight the differences between the perspectives, right? Like... If, if these two people are talking to each other and they're talking about, let's, let's, let's put it in a conflict scenario. They're talking about a problem. They're talking about, I don't know what, make up a scenario. And the way that this person talks about that scenario 
And the way that this person talks about that scenario will be very different because they're looking from different angles. They're seeing different things. So this person, let's say there's, there's a conflict in the church between two people over an issue. And this person will focus on who's right. Like that's all he cares about. But maybe the person that's right has been very cruel. And this person won't see the, what that person's right about. They'll just see how cruelly they're dealing with the issue and how they're not being considerate. They're not being compassionate. They're not using kind words. They're not being patient. And so that automatically makes the person who's right wrong in this person's perspective. And this person's saying, well, I don't care how they, I don't care the way they're, the words they're using. I don't care about what they're, the way people feel about how they talk about it. They're actually right about the issue. And so they're right. And he says, no, the other person's right. And you can see how a conflict can develop. It's the same situation. The same data set will be seen differently by the two different perspectives. And, and, and when we look even deeper at that, what we see is that even when these two people are talking about something between the two of them, they're just having a communication. What happens is that when we talk to people, we, we have an internal framework that we see the world through. Like, I only think, I only see through my eyes, and I only think through my brain and my personality. And it requires empathy to understand that not everybody is like me. And so when I say X, I mean X. But when I hear you say Y, what I do in my mind is I say, what would I mean if I had said Y? But that may have nothing to do with what you meant when you said Y. Because we're not talking from the same perspective. And so a lot of the miscommunication and the problems that we find interpersonally in the church are coming from exactly this conflict. We're saying the same things, but meaning different things when we say them. And so when you say something to me and I say, well, if I had said that, this is what I would have meant. And that's very mean. And I would never say that to somebody. And how dare they say that to me? And so they must not like me or they have a problem with me or whatever. However, you can, you can imagine that these things get muddled up between perspectives and we're not speaking the same thing. So what's the resolution? The resolution is first to understand that What's my perspective? Where am I coming from? How am I seeing the world? What's my lens, my, my lens that I'm looking through to see the world? How is that shaping the way that I think about the things that I, that I say and do and see? So I understand me, and maybe I don't understand, maybe I don't know you yet, but the fact that I know that there are people who are different than me is the right place to begin interpersonal communication. Yeah. That there's room when we talk. I don't have to know you. I just have to know that there's all kinds of different motivations in the world. And we see the world through different lenses. And that if I grant that, if I leave room for that, then I don't have to make assumptions about what you mean. And I can ask and clarify. When you say that, what do you mean? Or even if it's a, it's a moment of conflict. Say, if I said that, here's what I would be meaning. Is that what you mean? No, no, no. I don't mean that. I, I wouldn't even think to say that. Those are the kinds of things that we can employ when we start to feel tension and friction in interpersonal relationships, like we're missing each other, we're not understanding each other, or we're mistrusting each other, or we're not connecting, this is a place to begin. Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about what, the, what this lens does, how this lens works, and what it produces in a person's life. These are generalizations, they're not... They're not, they're not across the board. They're just generalizations. Not every person. These are also, I should say too, that, that let's imagine like a whole person is a bar graph and, and maybe he's this and this gift and this and this, and then he's boom, 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 boom. And that's a whole person. Like he can understand all these, but these are the two that he really sees the world through. Or maybe some people are much more even. They're like this. And they just have one, or some people are like this. This happens sometimes. When, the, when you meet these people, you know what they are. They're not hard to figure out. But all, all that to say, these gifts are a spectrum. They're a range. So when we, talk about, when we talk about these people are this way, we're just talking about in generalities. Like what we expect. Let's assume when I'm talking about these attributes, that this mercy person is this. 
He's all mercy. What, what, what would that person look like and function like? Here's, here's the strengths and weaknesses of this gift in, in exclusion. The strength of mercy people is that they are deeply, deeply, deeply loyal people. Because their world revolves around um, emotions and relationships, they want their relationships to be very deep. So these people are not like, they're not long distance relationship people. And they're not, um, they're not generally life of the party people. They're not somebody who's friends with everybody. They usually, people who are strong in the mercy gift usually have a group of, a small group of very close friends that are, they're very invested in. The relationships are very important. And it's important for them that that be reciprocal. That the people that they're close to feel like they're close to them too. Because of this, because loyalty is a cardinal virtue in the relationships with these people, um, they're, they're very quick to come to the defense of the people that are close to them. They want to defend their friends, the people that they care about, the people that they, they feel like are in their circle. They're quick to defend and to jump to the defense of those people. Um, what happens then because of this propensity is that a mercy person can be so quick to defend the people that he, he or she cares for that they can kind of jump in before they know what's going on or before they think about the situation very well. Their impulse is to defend. Their impulse is to, to, to protect and shield the people that they care about. Let's look, at, let's look at one place where this happened in John's life. It's in Luke 9, starting in verse 52. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, and they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? They are ready to jump to the defense of Jesus, like They don't even have to think about it. Like, they're ready to call down fire. John's, like, right there. Like, you're going to challenge Jesus, then you're out, buddy. You're gone. I'll call down fire on you. And this is a reaction that we see from mercy people often. When there's some kind of conflict or problem, they'll jump right in with the people that they're close to. That's good for what it's good for. But that taking up of offenses, I started with this particular attribute because the taking up of offenses is one of the most likely downfalls for the mercy person. Let let me explain what I mean by this. What does it mean to take up an offense? Well, it's, it's one version of it's what we just read. You don't listen to Jesus, I want to call down fire. But John is offended for Jesus. Nobody did anything wrong to John. He perceives the offense to Jesus, and he, t- he owns that as his offense. Now, the dynamics of this in church I've watched happen many, many times. And what happens is, Brother A has a conflict with Brother B, and C is our mercy person. And C and B are tight, right? So C knows that there's a conflict between A and B. C may have nothing to do with this situation. He wasn't there. He doesn't know anything about it. He wasn't involved. He hasn't talked about sides. He just knows that there's a problem between these two. So this guy is, is automatically on the outs. He's the bad guy. Now, that's, that's a problem. You can imagine why that's a problem. Because maybe B was wrong. Maybe they're both wrong. We don't know. We just know that there's an offense. But here's where it gets really sticky. A and B now have this conflict. But they're okay. They get together. They go through a biblical process of reconciliation. And they smash it. And now they're all good. A and B are fine now. 
it was a misunderstanding or somebody repented or whatever happened in that situation, A and B are cool now, no problems. But C still has an offense. But C can't fix anything with A because there's no real problem between A and C, right? He's, he's got B's offense, but he can't fix B's offense because it's not his offense. He doesn't have anything to say to A. He can't go to A and say, I didn't like, I mean, he could. I didn't like the way you talked to B. But we're very unlikely to do that. And so what happens is that this just gets buried and it just kind of like, it just lingers. And there's this lingering hostility or resentment between A and C. And sometimes A will know this and sometimes he won't, probably depending on his gifting. But, but this lingering hostility can be there and how you, how's C supposed to fix that? It's not their problem. And this is why there's a biblical recourse for reconciliation. It's why there's all these instructions for how to fix interpersonal problems. And, and why we have to leave things with the people who have problems first and then let them bring people into the scenario if they need help. Whenever, especially if you're a mercy person, if you hear of conflict, make sure to be careful. Set up your guards at that place and tell B, have you talked to A? Have you worked through the process of reconciliation? Is, are things, do you need help with somebody in the church to go with you and to talk through that issue? Are you following Matthew 18? I, if you're wise, you'll say, I really don't want to hear about it unless I need to be involved. If you know that this is a propensity that you have in your life, then set up guards in your life when you encounter these situations, when there's potential to take up offenses for someone, Put, put, a, put a guard in your life and say, I'm not going to get involved in that unless it's my job to get involved. Because then if B says, yeah, we got this beef between us and we can't resolve it, then he can, he can get his friends, he can get one or two others, and they can all sit down at a table, and then they can talk it all out together and we can find resolution. This can be fixed. But when out, without going through that process... It just turns into these lingering doubts and problems with your brothers and sisters. I, I, I'm serious. If I could, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen that exact scenario play out in the church and create all kinds of problems for people's lives. And I'll say it again. I think this is the most likely downfall of somebody who's, who has a mercy gifting. Um, this same kind of dynamic, if somebody tells me that they always choose the underdog in any situation, I almost automatically infer that they have a mercy gifting. Is that something that they do? They, they, they want to be with the person who's underrepresented, regardless of the truth claim or the proposition of the scenario. They just want to be on the side that they feel is, is, is being, um, delegitimized or minimized or they feel like not heard. They, they want to be on the side of that person. Their heart just bends towards that. And this is a strength and a weakness. It's good that there's people in the church who, who bend their ear towards people who are, are underrepresented or unheard. That's a good thing. But it has to be couched with the combination of, this is where in these, wherever you see opposites, and we'll talk more about this, but wherever you see uh, opposites um, across these domains, you have a lot of potential for misunderstanding. Again, we'll talk more about that. But, but, but where, you see, where you look across the opposites, you see the real need for integration in the church of all of these giftings. The strength that comes from combining these things is fantastic. But the weakness that comes when they're at odds is, is really debilitating. In, um, in cases where... In cases where there's a taking up of offense, another safeguard for mercy people is to, is to have some friends who are exhorters and prophets. Like, okay, so, so the mercy person has a friend, Susie, and Susie's, Susie's life is a mess, and, and there's all kinds of problems that are happening in her life, 
and the mercy person is just there to cry with them and to help them and to love them and to try to shield them and protect them from some of that pain or at least to experience it with them. And, and what happens is that when it comes time to sorting out the problems, these aren't always the best people to sort out what to do. In other words, their counsel is not always very thorough because they're, they're stuck in the feeling phase. And we need people in the feeling phase. I'm not saying that disparagingly. But that's where they, that's where they live. And oftentimes what needs to happen in order for Susie to change situations is that she needs somebody to diagnose the sin or give steps to change the outcomes. And so prophets and exhorters are a mercy's best friend if they'll learn how to use them well. If they can have people that they trust, that they can call into the situations that they find where they're, where they're crying with people and holding hands and caring for people who are hurting, if they have some friends who they trust, who are prophet and mercy giftings, those people can diagnose the situation and help things change in the future. Maybe, maybe Susie's life is a mess because because she has an addiction problem, or because she gets involved in bad relationships, or, or who knows what, or because she doesn't love the truth. Those are reasons that sometimes people's lives fall apart. And, and sometimes it takes somebody who is willing to call those sins what they are and give a call to truth to bring them out of the effects of that sin. Sometimes it's just, it's just bad character or bad, bad personal development. And if you would just, if, if Susie would sit down with an exhorter and say, here's what's going on in my life, and an exhorter could say, well, if you would think about this and do this and this and that, then you'll find that you won't end up in this situation again. I'll help you do that. Those are really useful skills. All three of these in combination with each other are fantastic. They're a dynamic trio when they can work together. <clears throat> Okay, a strength of mercy people um, is that they, they build and develop ver these very deep friendships. They require those close friendships. We talked about that already. They want a small, intimate group generally. Uh, and they want mutual commitment. They want, they want their friends to also have a small, intimate world as well, generally. And we see this, we see this in, in, in John's life, right? He's one of the three. We have the three, the 12, the 70, the 120. Like there are these concentric circles around Jesus's life. And when you get into the very center of Jesus's relational life, here we find John. He's one of the closest. And he says of himself that he's the, he calls himself the beloved apostle. Like, that's his identity. That's how he sees his relationship to Jesus. I'm the one that Jesus loves. My circle is small, and Jesus' circle is small around me. We together are these intimate, close associates and friends. He was one of the closest. <clears throat> the weakness of this, of this propensity, um, of these small, intimate circles, is they can become cliquish. Or they can become demanding on the people that they would be close friends with. They can require the same kind of intimacy that they want. And that doesn't always work in everybody's life. Uh, one manifestation that I've seen of this desire for intimate small circles is that um, mercy people can... Um, they can go through a process where... They take the people that they're close to and they kind of put them on a pedestal. They're like the best people around and they're, they're very devoted to them. They're very loyal to them. They think they're the greatest. And then through some situation, their friends who are, their few friends who are on a pedestal, either those people go away or, or the social circle changes or something happenings. And, and the mercy person finds new people in his life and, and they have a propensity to kind of pull down the, the person on the pedestal and, and think poorly of them so that they can put someone else in that place. Like there's, there's, there's only one place on the pedestal, right? And so if this is friend A and friend A leaves or is busy or has other friends or associations, I want to put B up there so 
A's got to go. So oftentimes that is an emotional or or psychological like trashing of that person in order for B to be in that place. And this is a this is a toxic way of dealing with relationships. This is kind of a carnal response that mercy people have when they're operating in the flesh and not in the spirit. We don't want to we if you're a mercy person be careful not to to do this pedestal thing where you lift people up. It's easy when you like someone to that's all that your relationship is about. Uh, a way of saying is this uh, uh, that's a little less um, dogmatic is that that they can only have one friend at a time, right? Like, I got one friend, and if it's not you, it's you, then it's not you. Like, they don't do this blending and mixing between different people groups very well, different friend groups. So that's a consequence of building these very deep friendships. Another strength with Mercy People is that they have a, a... a really great capacity for empathy. And um, it's worth, I think most of us probably know, but it's worth discussing the difference between sympathy and empathy, right? Because mercy people, at their best, they're, they're not sympathetic, they're empathetic. Sympathy means, I feel bad for you. Empathy means, I feel bad with you. Yeah. Like, I can look at somebody who's, Things aren't going well and be like, oh, man, that must be a real bummer to be in that situation. That's sympathy. Empathy is like, I hurt because you hurt. I'm here in that pain with you. I feel how it is to be in that situation. And this is a rare thing. Like, this is nothing to scoff at. The ability to empathize the way that mercy people do is a really dynamic trait. Sympathy is rare enough. Like, to even get people to care about other people is one thing. And we should all have that capacity. But empathy is just that next level where, you're, where you can be in that situation with the people who are hurting. Or rejoicing. It goes both ways. they have this capacity to sense and to share with people. But it's, like I said, it's not just in pain. These are generally emotionally robust people. They feel things in big ways. Um, if you sum up the, some of the reasons that John writes his epistle, it's to give joy, fellowship, hope, and confidence, and to cast out fear and torment. Like, that's a broad emotional range that he's addressing in, that, in his re- rationale for that epistle. It's a very emotional case being made. The weakness of this particular gift of empathy is that it's overshadowing. And what I mean by that is that when you feel things deeply with people, there becomes an incentive to let that overshadow things that, things that, may, that may be causes. Like we talked about before, the needing of the prophet and the exhorter. The empathy and the feeling can get in the way of seeing what, what the underlying case is. It can also, this can be more important than, um, than the things that that person is doing that are wrong. So it can become, the empathy can become an excuse for sin. Like, it must be, like, think of, like, a, a classic case of this would be a mercy person interacting with someone who's in a divorce or remarried situation. Or, or, or maybe they're not even married, they're in a bad relationship. And r- rather than looking at, hey, if you, if you were following God's plan and order and not in this relationship, you wouldn't be in this pain. Like that diagnosis can be very hard because they want to be so much involved 
in the feeling, especially when people are wounded and hurting and looking for someone to understand them, that's so appealing to them to be in that place with them that they can overlook these other situations, these other reasons for why that situation is what it is. A lot of these, a, a lot of the, that's the, uh, that's the essential conflict with the mercy person. And a, a lot of the things that we're talking about here are just kind of like other ways to look at. But the central issue is this proposition of feeling, emotion versus causation and truth. They're not necessarily in conflict, but there's a potential for them to be. So this, this capacity to tolerate sin in sympathy for relationships is, a, is something to watch out for. <clears throat> um, another attribute of mercy people is that they're sensitive to how people perceive situations. This is where that underdog thing comes in. They, they have like a sixth sense for, for how people are responding to situations, for when they're hurt or when they're, they're feeling vulnerable or not heard. Like that stuff perks their ears up in ways that it doesn't many of the other gifts. They have a, they're hyper attuned to this notion of somebody um, feeling bad about a situation. This, this capacity to perceive people in situations um, can render the mercy person, this is the weakness of this strength, it can render the mercy person in kind of an indecisive capacity. Like, what I mean by that is that they're very slow to say or do things that people would perceive poorly. Like, it puts them in kind of a decision paralysis sometimes. Like, they don't want to do things or say things that would be perceived by people in certain ways. It doesn't even, they, they can't even know that that's not their intention or that there's a good motive or reason for it, but it still will cause them to be in this place of indecision because they, even if it's the, they, they're, they're convinced it's the right thing to do, they don't want people to think wrongly about them or about the situation. So this, this indecisiveness is a, it can be crippling for people. There's, um, it's interesting though, John in Acts, I think due in, to a lot of factors in his life at the time, he, he is known to be both very bold and decisive. In Acts chapter 4 it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... They perceived that they were unlearned, ignorant men. They marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And I think that mercy people in particular need confidence from their relationship to Christ to do the things that need to be done, regardless of what people think. The, the connection to Jesus and the, the transference of that emotional energy and, and zeal for, for empathy, if that gets turned towards Christ, it gives people the strength to make steps that otherwise would be very difficult for them. Um, this reluctance, uh, this propensity to indecisiveness and reluctance to, to put themselves in situations that people would perceive negatively, it, it, it generally makes mercy people not good candidates for authority positions, whether that's in the secular world or the church world. They, don't, they just don't like telling people things they don't want to hear. And so oftentimes that's a role that needs to be fulfilled in the work environment or in the church where people just have to be told things that they don't want to hear and mercy people are not good at doing that. They don't like to say things that are painful to other people. Okay, another strength of mercy people is that they're this, uh, this high degree of empathy makes them very sensitive to genuine care and love. They're, they're like love meters. That capacity, though, it, it renders them, what I find is that a lot of mercy people that I've known well over the years have a lot of hurts. Like, because they feel things so deeply and because they're so sensitive to, to things that maybe other people wouldn't be sensitive to. So, uh, from my framework, I expect a certain amount of, like, it's just life. Everybody's not always doing things right. Things happen. People say insensitive things. And 
I say insensitive things like that's just a part of life and we go on and there's kind of like a, a, a grading average that we run people with and it's like, okay, well, you were kind of a jerk the other day, but, but I know it was a hard day, whatever, so we'll, we'll go on. Mercy people don't always do that. When these little hurts, instead of being average, they just build up and they, they're seen as a lack of genuine love. And, and they're right. They are. Being, being insensitive to people is a lack of genuine love. Yeah. But, but they, they feel those things every time they happen. And, and if they don't have good communication skills, which oftentimes mercy people don't, um, if they don't have good communication skills, those things, they don't, they don't feel like they have a way to address them and to find recourse for them. And so they just build up into this catalog of hurts until there's some breaking point. And so a, a lot of mercy people that I've known come with like a backlog of hurts and pains in close relationships in their life because they're very sensitive to those things. And that's, that's hard. It's hurtful. And it can have a few different responses. It can have a few different outworkings. Those hurts in mercy people's lives can make them callous. It can make them shut down. It can make them depressed. Like those are, those are ways that people deal with hurts that are not redemptive, that aren't helpful. They don't, they don't cause you to find the problem and get to the root of it. They just hurt and keep hurting. Um, mercy people tend to attract people who are in distress. They're like magnets for hurting people. And, and this, I think, is one of the most dynamic things about them in the church that they, they have this capacity to find the hurting people and and get into to where the wounded area is yeah, and right. and be there with those people and show the compassion of Christ in people's lives when they're really at their lowest and really need someone to be there in that place uh, this makes mercy people very attractive to people who are hurting and wounded and and embittered uh, and offended like they're they're magnets for those those needs in people's lives, and so they can end up with a, a ring of people around them who are in that category, who are who are embittered, wounded, and 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 having a lot of problems. That obviously is a strength if there's other ways to to work out people's re- resolution to people's situations and become more whole, more healthy. But it can also have the effect of just having a circle of people who are close to you who are very bitter or hurt or wounded. Um, interestingly, when I was thinking about these attributes, um, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that David was motivationally a mercy person. But when we read in Second Samuel, the people that he collects when he goes out into the wilderness running away from Saul, it's exactly these people. It, it, there's a description, actually. It's those who were um, in distress and in debt and discontented. That's the people that, that David collected when he ran off into the wilderness running from Saul. And that's the, that's the pool of people that became David's mighty men, were those people. They started off... They had nothing left. That's why they went with him. They, like when David left and fled into the wilderness, it wasn't like it wasn't like when they went to Bethlehem to get water for David. He wasn't their noble hero king. They were like, we got nothing here. We might as well go off and live in the woods with David. Those were the people that he collected. And David, through his through his gifts and through his grace from God. He, he was able to take those hurting, wounded people and turn them into his mighty men that, that did go to Bethlehem to fetch him water. So there's an incredible opportunity in, in the capacity to care for those people. Um, m- mercy people tend to want to remove people from hurts. Like they want to, they, they, they kind of, I don't know if it's too strong to say it this way, but they can they can put them in the place they can put themselves in the place where they're rescuing and and trying to remove hurts from people's lives and and oftentimes that comes via cutting off whoever is perceived as the offender and it's that same scenario that we've already talked about 
uh, and this capacity, this 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 way of doing this gift, it has a certain utility. There are times when it's good to give separation between people and and what's causing the hurt. Um, but here again, it's something that um, oftentimes that situation is from God to create a difference in the person who's experiencing the difficulty. And rather than rescuing them out of the pain, oftentimes people need to work through what's causing the pain to find their themselves stronger. And I, maybe that's the way to say it, is that it's good for people with the gift of mercy to want to create wholeness, not just the absence of pain. And that takes something... Um, that's not quite as intuitive to think about to think about the whole person, not just the wound. Um, it, it, it can be hard for mercy people to realize that pain can have a redemptive purpose a and they can even struggle with God over the pain that's in people's lives. They can feel there's a capacity for mercy people to develop bitterness towards God for allowing hurt and pain in the world because they're, they're so sensitive to it. And so under certain circumstances, they can, they can develop kind of that bitterness towards God. Or... Or... Likewise, minimize hard teachings that are important for people's life. Um, it's a strength of mercy people that they, they want to be close physically and psychologically with people. Um, they, they want to feel emotionally and physically connected to people. Um, this is, we see, you know, John at the Lord's Supper is the disciple who's reclining on Jesus's breast. He wants to be, he's not even, it's not even enough to be one of the 12 at the table. He wants to be right there, like literally in Jesus's bosom, like with his head on his chest, as close as he can be. And that level of intimacy and that expression of intimacy is, I feel like, a good picture of where the mercy person part, heart is. And and to the extent that that it's Jesus' breast that the mercy person wants to recline on, that there's there aren't substitutes for that, is the extent to which these things will stay in balance in that person's life. It this desire to be close has another outworking in Mark ten. Um, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we desire. And he said unto them, What would you that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant to us, unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy glory. And he says, This isn't mine to give. There's a gentle rebuke that Jesus has for them in that situation. He's like, Okay, boys, I get it, but let's, let's keep it in order here. You're not the only people. You're not the only ones. And, and and that's for God to decide. Um, lastly, we see that uh, another attribute of mercy people is that they tend to they tend to have a native draw to prophets, um, and this isn't. This, this is much more on the side of mercy people than prophets. I think prophets are too aloof and too obtuse to recognize they have needs for other people generally, unless they're really conscientious about it. But mercy people do. And for some reason, they really tend to draw to prophets. And this is a good thing. Um, if they can keep that relationship balanced and in tune, th th it's actually one of the most, I think, dynamic potentials it can be hard in marriages. When prophets and mercy people marry, it can be hard years to work through to get to that balanced place. But in general terms, mercy people t like to have prophets around them. Um, and that dynamic is interesting to me. I think it's something to learn from, from mercy people. The reason I say this is not just experiential. It's also the case that we have, of all these lists, there's, there's two 
mm, there's three examples that I'm sure that the person in the Bible is a is like an ideal archetype. Like some of them, it's a good like Timothy was a server. That makes sense. I see it. But there's three of them that are I'm pretty dogmatic. Like those guys are that, and it's Nehemiah is the ruler, John is the mercy, and Peter is the prophet. And Peter and John are two of the three in the intimate circle of Jesus. Like, and, and, and when we read the narrative structure of the Gospels, it's Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John that always emerge. Like they're running to the tomb. They're, they're involved in all this inner circle stuff. And there's something about the balance that's created by their relationship, by the two of them together, that I really think is a central reason why why the apostolic movement takes off the way it does. Their capacity to balance each other out and to really care for one another and heed to one another, listen to one another, I think made all the difference for the world. And it may be why they were at the center of of Jesus' personal relationships. Um, Okay. So... That's, that's the gift of mercy, and that concludes this list. I, uh, let's talk about what's next. I want to share just a few more things that, about the gifts. I think I can do it in about 10 minutes. Let me share a few things about this whole list of gifts, not specifically about mercy. And, and then... And then we can move on from this Romans 12, and I don't have to do another sermon about Romans 12. Okay, we talked about these, these opposite ranges, right? These spectrums. So you have, you have a spectrum from prophet to mercy. You have a spectrum from uh, ruler to server. And you have a spectrum from teacher to exhorter, right? These are opposite ranges. And... Um, and, and so what, there's a couple of things to discern from this. We need to be careful across these domains. Like because these are pulling in different directions, they have a tendency for conflict. So whatever of these you are, notice that giver is not on here. He's the one that's missing. He doesn't have an opposite. I don't know why. I just, I know there's seven. It's not an, it's not an even number. And these function in the world in, in opposite domains. So prophet is truth, mercy is relationship. Ruler is management organization, server is doer. Like this is the overseeing and this is the practical doing. Teachers are knowledge and exhorters are, are practical experience. And so, so there's, when, wherever you find yourself on the scale, unless you're a giver and then you just do whatever you want. If you're on one of these six domains, if you're talking to somebody on the opposite end of your spectrum, know that there's a high likelihood for potential misunderstanding and conflict, especially across that domain. There's potential for offense, misunderstanding, all those things. So that's one thing to notice. Another thing to notice is that there are, there are what I... If we borrow the terms, and it's not very precise, but if we borrow the terms... There are essentially extroversion gifts and introversion gifts. I don't mean that in a psychological way, like in the technical definite, the clinical way of using those terms. But what I mean is that they're outfacing or infacing. What are the outfacing gifts? Prophets. What do they do? They declare messages. They they pronounce truth. It's outside them. Teachers. They they disseminate knowledge. It's generally an externally motivated gift. Uh, and exhorters. So prophets, teachers, and exhorters are the outward-facing gifts. An exhorter, he doesn't want, I mean, he will work on himself, but it's more so that he's good at working on other people. Like, his, his gig is all about other people growing. That's what he wants to do. And so all of these are outside-facing. Now, what are the other ones? Server, he's seeing needs. Like, he's looking, what's inside, what's inside, and then he wants to go do it. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to, Servers generally, they don't want a lot of recognition and publicity. They just want to do the thing that needs to be done. And then mercy people are all internal, like feelings, like I feel how you feel. It's in here. And then uh, rulers 
are, rulers and teachers are a little less this way. These are very extroverted and these are very introverted. And then these are kind of more in the middle. But the ruler is like a managerial, like he's looking over his spreadsheets and making sure everything's done. Like he wants to be way up here above everything and look down and make sure everything's going well. Like it's this organizational symphony that, he's, that he or she is after. And so it's this like internal framework in all of these. Now, what I've noticed is that in, in church environments, this tends to be a click and this tends to be a click. They'll gather together. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's because of this in, uh, introversion extroversion dynamic or what it is. These guys are all talkers, and so they don't mind talking. These guys are tend to be more on the wallflower end of the spectrum. They want to sit and have quiet, intimate conversations. So that's a dynamic that we that we notice in the church. It's something to to pay attention to. Um, I think that that Proverbs 6 is worth meditating on. These are the six things, yea, seven, that the Lord hates. And I think that there's a way to view that as correlating to each of the gifts in turn. So if you want to know what, what way your gifting can be offensive to God, what propensity you have to sin because of your motivation, you can look here in Proverbs 6 and find those seven things that God hates. Um... That's worth meditating on. What else do I want to say about the gifts? The givers are weird to me. All my years of studying these, these gifts, I understand everything but this guy. I, if you have insights onto givers, I want to know because I think mm, it's too speculative. I have thoughts, but they're too speculative. If you, if, you, if you dig this and you get into it and you have thoughts about givers, tell me because it's an ongoing research project of mine to figure out givers they kind of they kind of just live in a world on their own i th i think in part it's because they're like the gas for the engine of the church their ability to to create and manipulate resources allows a lot of things to happen around them but they're kind of rare and they don't fit a lot of my other they're the odd one they're the fringe that determines the order Okay, I think that we're going to call that good on Romans 12. So, here's your homework. I want you to know what your gift is. And there, I can send you, I can send you internet tests, and I can send you, like, there's, they abound. You can find a million different little tests that'll tell you what you are, but that's not what I want. I mean, you can start there. And if you haven't done some of those already, you should. But don't leave it there. Don't trust that. Think about it. Figure out what of these motivations really make you tick. So that if I ask you or somebody asks you, what, what do you think your gift is? I don't just want to know what the, what the test on this particular website said. I want you to know what makes you tick. How, how, how do you fit within the spectrum? And maybe it's a few things, but, but it'd be good to focus on that. And then, and then I think it'd be fantastic if you would have a... Let's, let's, let's go off of Jesus' inner circle and let's say know what three of the people in your church are too, at least, just as a study of other people outside of yourself to know what are the other gifts that are around me so that I can start practicing how to interact with people who are different than me. So that's your mission, should you choose to accept it. And, uh, and what's next? I, I, I want to go on from here. I want to deal with the APEST. Who knows Apest? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. That's the Ephesians list. These are ministries, not motivations, ministries. I want to I go over these because these are super critical for the church too. I will probably do one message on the manifestations in 1 Corinthians. Um, there's, there's just not as much to say about them. You either do the, you either have the gift of miracles or you don't. Like, there's not a whole lot. Of, like, you can heal people or you can't. Like, there's not a. I want to talk about some of why God does what He does in those things. So we will do a message on the manifestation gifts, but there's just not as much need for intricate descriptions of what's happening there. Um, and so, so maybe we'll leave that to the end, and the next time I speak, we'll start going through APES. There'll probably be two or three messages to get through those. 
Okay, well, thanks for your patience and sticking on with me through this. It's been good for me to go through again, and I hope it's been helpful for the church. Let's say a word of prayer, and then I'll let Alex come and close us out. Heavenly Father, we find your ways marvelous and wonderful and beautiful. We want to... We want to look into the way that you've made the world around us, the way that you've made us. Father, we want to understand what's at work in, in how you've made us to be. Father, we thank you for these descriptions that you've given us in your word and the opportunity to, to look deeply into what you're trying to say about these things. I pray that you would give us inspiration and wisdom, that you'd help us to see who we are and who, the, who our brothers and sisters are so that we can understand how to be what you called us to be, the body of Christ at work in the world. Father, I pray that you would magnify the gifts in the church. I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us and help us to, to fully function within the exact domain that you created us for. I pray that each of us would be so full of purpose and zeal for the thing that you've made us to be that we could all find our harmony together like a symphony of God, like, like, like an ecosystem, like the beauty of the natural world, like the courses of the stars, like the way that you arrange the order of the world. Father, I pray that your church would be ordered, that we would see each of our course and our place and understand them well. I pray that you would help us to to be sympathetic and to learn from our brothers who are different than us and our sisters who, are, who see things differently than we do and learn what Christ is doing in all these things. We love the body of Christ and we love one another and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.